0: Hi, I'm Alison Kaplan-Summer in Tel Aviv. Welcome to Haaretz Weekly. From the moment it was announced that Queen Elizabeth II was gravely ill, followed hours later by the announcement of her death, the focus on the Queen and her legacy has been relentless. On the podcast, we'll talk about what her reign meant and didn't mean with a special focus on her relationship with the British Jewish community and with Israel in a conversation with Haaretz English Editor-in-Chief Esther Solomon. After that, I'll be speaking with the co-creators of a major documentary series that premieres on September 18th called The U.S. and the Holocaust. The three-part, six-hour series delves into America's failure to open its gates to Jews who were desperate to flee Nazi dangers before, during, and after World War II, and the racism and anti-Semitism underlying those U.S. policies. Also, why it's a cautionary tale for Americans today. All that, coming up. Esther Solomon has been on our podcast before in her role as Haaretz's opinion editor. But over the summer, we've had some big changes at Haaretz English, a coronation, if you will. And Esther now holds the title of Haaretz English editor-in-chief, or as we like to call her sometimes, Queen Esther. Uh, You're the only person who says that, actually. (laughs) How are you doing, Esther? Very well, thank you. So like many of us, you are a dual citizen, in your case, Israeli-British, and a journalist who keeps a close watch on both of your countries. Your Israeli side has obviously been deep in our political cycles, the fifth elections, etc. But suddenly, for the past week, nonstop, it's all been about the United Kingdom. You are a former Londoner, many years living in the city, right? Um, You have deep roots in the United Kingdom, what were your first thoughts when you found out that the only monarch of your lifetime had passed away? Uh,
1: I felt a moment of sadness, definitely. But more than that, you realize that it's the end of a, of a historical epoch, which was longer than my own lifetime. In fact, my own grandmother uh, passed away recently. She was 104. She was about the only person that had proper grown-up memories of monarchs before Elizabeth. So someone who was very much part of how uh, UK culture was as I grew up and as an adult. You know, they're on our currency, they're on our stamps. A figurehead of national identity that had become somewhat more, not necessarily controversial, but weaker in some ways perhaps over the years as well.
0: So what did your Jewish grandmother think of the Queen?
1: Oh, she absolutely loved her.
0: Yeah? Yeah.
1: I think there's no doubt that much of the older generation, also quite a lot of the current generation of the Jewish community, felt uh, warm and fuzzy towards her. I think partly because there is this tendency to want to give respect to the institutions um, and symbols of, of England, which has provided safe haven for the Jewish community for you know, quite a few hundred years now. There is some kind of knee-jerk um need to show that you're a loyal citizen even though perhaps there is, should be no need to to prove that kind of thing anymore the queen and the royal family are part of the synagogue service where a prayer is traditionally read for their welfare for the idea that there is a, a strong connection between the welfare of you know a minority community like the jewish community and uh, a stable political entity of which you know the queen is the ultimate symbol so it is also In the bizarre terminology of the United Kingdom, the government are her servants, as it were. So you're really, you know, praying for the stability of the political system and the government as much as for uh, the Queen, but it kind of goes through her name.
0: And I don't know if it's the Israeli in you or whether this is the kind of take that you would uh, have otherwise if you had stayed in the UK. But your op-ed last week um, after her death was a little less than worshipful, if I might say. Uh, You wrote, quote... What makes it so much easier not to fall into the sin of serious mudslinging is that Elizabeth II was distinguished by how nondescript she was and that her attributes, mundane, dutiful, impassive, have been sanctified, and you imply in your op-ed a little bit overly sanctified. Uh,
1: Personally, uh, and I understand if this is not necessarily in tune with how some of public opinion in the UK is, the responses to her death whether it's out of the need to fill hours and hours of constant coverage, you know, covering the the move of her a funeral hearse centimeter by centimeter throughout the whole width and breadth of the country,
0: I was Where, having flashbacks to O.J. Simpson and the white Bronco, right? The helicopter flying over the car, except this was much slowed down, so it, yeah, but yeah.
1: slowed down in an incredible way. Whether it's because of that or because there is, you know, these are plans that have been laid for, let's be generous, at least probably 20, 30, 40 years, what will happen when the Queen passes away and these are all the programming ideas that we have to do. But the tone of the coverage has been so almost desperately hagiographic. I mean, turning what is a solemn, you know, and sad occasion into something that sounds more like you know, the creation of a new saint and I found that, you know, disturbing in terms of A, what kind of a portrayal that is actually of the Queen as a person, and B, what it says about the kind of deference and reverence towards the institution of monarchy, which I think is responsible for a kind of privileged a born into privileged hierarchy that the England struggles to ever kind of grow out of.
0: I mean, I watched The Crown and the whole theme of The Crown seemed to be her doing nothing and how hard it is to do nothing and et cetera. So uh, you suggest right into that void, people can project whatever they want because she hasn't moved left, right, up or down. And uh, so leaving that sort of uh, empty space for people to uh, to only put positive things into it.
1: Yes, I think that she has, you know, meant different things to different people, depending on what they're political or social cultural needs are you know the language that people use is you know anything from she's all of our granny which is I think making her more accessible than obviously she really was to being our matriarch which was another term that people use which I think is ludicrous to you know one commentator called her the queen of the world which was you know (laughs) certainly quite ambitious Uh, and I'd love to hear more what uh Americans in particular might think about that and many of the post-colonial uh, states as well.
0: Yeah. We're sort of a post-colonial state aren't we?
1: We are. <laughs> I haven't noticed there was a big move to uh, to join the commonwealth yeah. or uh, get back the mandate.
0: So what about Charles, as you pointed out, and as is obvious, he takes the throne without the benefit of that void. There's no void there. We know he has certain passions. We know he has a personality. He certainly has plenty of baggage uh, personally. Do you think that the fact that he's much more of a defined figure as he steps into the role of monarch is going to help him or hurt him?
1: Well, the funny thing is, I think, you know, just from a narrow point of view of let's say, you know, the Jewish community and other minority communities in the UK, Charles actually has a very, very uh, much more proactively interesting and engaged track record than the Queen, who, you know, did things because they're on her schedule, but, you know, didn't feel that it was really coming from the Kishkas, which I think most people would agree that Prince Charles does have a genuine interest in kind of multi-faith, multi-ethnic Britain.
0: So our headline is Charles has kishkas? <laughs> <laughs>
1: Everyone has kishkas. Um, but the point is that, you know, he's now going to have to salivate his mouth shut, basically. Unless he, you know, attempts some kind of minor revolution and how, you know, constitutional monarchy should work. He's not going to be able to express himself in anything that even smells of controversy. So, you know, on the one hand, people feel sorry for him that he's been waiting all his life to get to this job. On the other hand, I would hope that he would feel also that he's actually managed to live a life uh, and now he goes into a different chapter.
0: So you think the relationship of the British Jews to the crown was will stay status quo? You don't think there will be any shift or it'll get warmer, it'll get different? or I think
1: the fundamental shift is more of a generational one rather than anything that Charles may or may not do I think that it's uh, it seems unlikely that a generation that wasn't brought up with stories of you know how the royal family coped during World War Two, you know and kind of stirring stories of patriotism and those kinds of things that pull on the heartstrings of an old generation I, I find it hard to believe that that's really as effective today
0: we have to point out, while we're being provincial and looking at ourselves, um, that now we actually have a British monarch who has been to Israel, unlike the queen, um, and whose grandmother, Princess Alice of Battenberg, a righteous Gentile no less, who saved Jews uh, during World War II, uh, is buried here in Jerusalem, although she also had never been to Israel in her life. She just decided she wanted to be uh, buried there. Uh, Another Israeli English language publication, the Jerusalem Post, ran a house editorial today telling Charles that he must come for an official visit and bring Camilla with him. Are you eager for such a thing to happen, Esther? Am I eager? Eager (laughs) seems a slightly too eager word.
1: Um, Look, it would be, I love, you know, newsworthy events, so I certainly wouldn't say no to a royal visit, but it doesn't warm the cockles of my heart, if that's what you mean. I mean, I think that there is, is certainly recognising the role that his grandmother had, you know, very genuinely rescuing Jews at great personal risk during the war. and She became a nun afterwards as well. I mean, very complicated personal history, and she's buried on the Mount of Olives. You know, that would actually be an authentic reason for a visit. Whether or not there would be kind of Charles mania, kind of the mania <laughs> in the streets of Tel Aviv and yeah. Jerusalem, uh, that's... That seems a bit far off, although I'm sure, you know, Israelis love a party, so I'm sure they get into it.
0: Well, before I let you go, Esther, um, speaking of parties uh, and celebrations... even though we are in a period of mourning for the Queen, we are also celebrating our own little jubilee here uh, at Haaretz in English, our 25th anniversary, which has its own royal and British angle because the paper was first published on the day the news broke of Princess Diana's death. Now it's turning 25, very close to the death of the Queen, and its founding editor, David Landau, was British, and now its current editor, 25 years later, Esther Solomon, is uh, distinguished distinguished British citizen. It's all very symmetrical in a in a way.
1: Um, it's just it's just this quiet colonialism of the British over various countries of the world is still going on very successfully.
0: Absolutely. It is your language after all. Um, so looking ahead after we celebrate 25, as our new editor, what do you wish for Haaretz English in the next uh, 25 years, you know, no matter what happens to Charles?
1: Well, I wish that we will go from strength to strength, obviously. I think that... Uh, it was from very small and nerve-wracking days in a dark basement somewhere in Shocken Street in Tel Aviv came, first of all a print edition and then a website that reaches all over the world, millions of people every month. Uh, and I think that we offer a critical, engaged view of Israel, Israel's relationship with the world, Israel's relationship with the wide Jewish diaspora, Israel, and its neighborhood, in a way that you can't find anywhere else. And I think that is essential for any kind of proper, sophisticated discussion about what is going on here.
0: Amen. (laughs) Thanks so much, Esther, for coming on the podcast. Pleasure. Coming up, an interview with Lynn Novick and Sarah Botstein, co-directors of a new series on the U.S. and the Holocaust. It's a pleasure to welcome to the podcast two of the co-directors and producers of the new PBS documentary series, premiering on September 18th. The series is called The U.S. and the Holocaust, and the third leg of this three-director team is, of course, the acclaimed filmmaker Ken Burns. Lynn Novick has been making landmark documentaries in collaboration with Ken Burns for more than 30 years. She's created many hours of programming, including the series on Ernest Hemingway, the Vietnam War, baseball, jazz, Frank Lloyd Wright, The War, and Prohibition. Welcome, Lynn. Thank you so much. Pleasure to be here. And Sarah Botstein has, for more than two decades, produced some of the most popular and acclaimed documentaries on PBS, including the collaborations I mentioned above. This documentary, U.S. and the Holocaust, is Botstein's directorial debut. Welcome, Sarah. Thank you for having me. So, Lynn, tell me about the genesis of this project. We've seen hundreds, if not thousands, of documentaries made about the Holocaust at this point. What exactly was the story that you and the whole team felt hadn't been told, and some of the key myths that this film hopes to dispel? Thank you for asking
2: that. Uh, we agree there have. This is a subject that bears an enormous amount of scrutiny, and. Uh, being looked at at every generation. And it is true that many, many projects have been dedicated to telling the story of the Holocaust. For us, this was an opportunity to look at America's response to the Holocaust, during which we would have to tell what happened during the Holocaust. But our primary focus was on the the United States of America, the American people, our leaders, the press, the Jewish community here, and the connections between what was happening in the United States, what was happening in Europe, and how America responded, what Americans knew about it, and what they did and did not do.
3: Yeah, I think for Lynn and Ken and Jeff Ward, our writer, and for me, the idea of looking at this topic, which has been explored many different ways uh, through a different lens, was a really interesting and um, exciting challenge, actually. I think we often teach the Second World War and this period in history in very siloed ways. and uh, a film that explores the political dynamics of the humanitarian crisis of what's happening to the Jews of Europe and the military questions and domestic questions. Exploring what was happening here was an, was a, a film we all really felt needed to be made and wanted to work on.
0: One of the myths that it seems to be blasted time after time in this film is the assertion that americans didn't know about the holocaust in real time and that inaction was due to ignorance
2: yeah that i i i will say for myself that coming into the project i had that sense just generally that well we just really didn't know much and there are many reasons for that that i thought were the case but it turns out in the holocaust museum in washington the united states holocaust memorial museum uh, pioneered some of the research along with other scholars to look at what was in the newspapers what was on the radio what was in the newsreels and to get us to to sort of make the case that as hitler came to power and began persecuting the jewish people of germany and then as the nazi rule expanded the persecutions became more extreme and the extermination the mass killings began to happen it was covered in different ways but there's no way to say that the american people or the world was not aware of what was happening there was a bit of a delay at certain points in the narrative of how much information came across. On the other hand, I think it's also important to point out that reading something in the newspaper, even a big front page article with blaring headlines, is one kind of knowledge. The deep understanding of the scale of this catastrophe was hard to comprehend even to the people to whom it was happening, as Daniel Mendelson, the writer says in our film. So we do have to recognize that this was unprecedented in scale, scope, and the way it was done. And so for that reason, it, it was difficult to fully understand what was going on.
0: When I was watching it, I uh, couldn't help, you know, recent history, looking at the pictures on television of what was happening in Ukraine, which obviously is not comparable to the Holocaust, but still that same sense of, What can I do? What should be done? The discussion and the debate over uh, refugees, it just seemed to echo, you know, what was happening uh, in real time.
3: Yeah, we've talked a lot about this as we prepare for the film to broadcast. You know, we decided to make the film in 2015 and America was a very different country and the world looked very different in 2015. So some of the urgency that people are talking about sort of happened while we were making the film that domestic policy here changed. The rise of authoritarian and fascist regimes around the world had a spike, and where you know, the echoes in the film uh, are, are different than they would have been if the film come out in
0: 2015. I understand that uh, Ken Burns sort of urged the project along. It was supposed to be released later, and he said it was very important to get it out now. Do you remember those conversations?
3: Sure. It was practically a, a, a very accelerated post production schedule, but I think he was right. So it was worth it.
0: It's not just hinted, I mean, it's explicit, especially at the end of this film, the parallels of what happened in Nazi Germany, the way certain ideas developed, and Uh, I don't want to give away spoilers at the end of the film, but there are explicit connections made to some of the uh, conspiracy theories uh, circulating in the United States to what happened on January 6th. Are you worried that some of these real-time modern references will somehow make it look more like a polemic and less like a conventional we're telling a story documentary?
2: We leave it to the viewers to respond to the the film as they see it. We're we're really not worried about that at all. We've really tried to line up information, the facts, as they happened. And as Sarah was saying, as you were making the film, the echoes just got louder and louder and louder. And while we were working on this project about Hitler's rise to power and what authoritarian governments can do and get away with, and the way that they use propaganda and lies and repeating them over and over again and dehumanizing people to mobilize a population, to do awful things and a lot more. And also the the parallel popularity of some of those ideas inside the United States, especially in the 1930s. We just saw these echoes louder and louder as we worked on the film from 2016, 17, 18. There are a number of events in the, the outro of the film that we just sort of felt we had to pull the story through to the present so that our audience and ourselves could kind of try to make sense of what does this all mean for us today? And we truly wish this film were not as relevant as it seems to be to us.
3: I completely agree with what Lynn just said. I, you know, it's a sad statement that we, with the human capacity to persecute each other, wage war on each other, be xenophobic, racist, anti-Semitic, it's not a cheery picture.
0: Each episode is framed by the story of the Frank family. We follow the family who would become world famous in the diary of Anne Frank on their journey and their attempt to escape the Holocaust by being permitted to enter the United States. Why was this choice made? Uh, Was it because of the familiarity with Anne Frank uh, that you thought would drive this home? Or did you make new discoveries along the way about the situation of the Frank family?
3: Um, It came to our attention when we started making the film that There were letters from Otto Frank to um, his connections in America, desperately trying to get here. And I think we can all agree that Anne Frank's diary is often the entry point for school children and people to learn about this period in history. And I certainly was never taught that Lynn was never taught that Ken didn't know that Jeff didn't know that our team didn't know that. And it felt like really relevant, pertinent information. For us on a subject about the U.S. and the Holocaust. As Lynn often says, wait, Anne Frank has something to do with me. I'm an American. I didn't understand that. That's not how the diary is taught. So we got Otto Frank's files from Wonderful Archive in New York, YIVO, and began to pour over those letters and think about how to start the film following this very famous family and their odyssey. And then for all of you who watch the film, it has different connections and things happen. And we try to bring Anne Frank's story and experience to life in a way that feels not only relevant to an American audience, but different than how at least we were taught who she is and why the diary is important.
0: I watch the story coming from Israel and having grown up in the United States, and I see Israelis, Uh, absorbing this film differently than Americans because Americans believe a little bit in American exceptionalism. We're different. We're better. What could happen in Europe could never happen here. And Israelis don't see America as that exception. And they're kind of less surprised, I guess, by a lack of distinction between uh, Americans and Europeans. Um, I'm curious about your reaction to that and also whether you think that Jews and non-Jews in the United States are going to see this film the same way. To answer your second question first, we expect that different people will see the film differently,
2: depending on all kinds of things. And even within the Jewish community, there's going to be a wide range of responses to the film, because as in Israel, the Jewish community of America is hardly monolithic. There's such a wide range of perspectives about our own history, about all kinds of things. So we're looking forward to that conversation. It hasn't really begun, but we really will be eager to see how the film lands for different people. And to the other point, yes, you know, it's it's been really instructive for us already to engage somewhat with Israeli press and reporters and people in Israel about how the U.S. looks from outside, especially from Israel, and understanding that the failure of the United States to welcome refugees more than we did. And we did do more, as we say in the film, than any other sovereign nation, which is something but barely adequate. We could have done so, so, so much more. And it is very much in conflict with Americans. I generally, or many Americans sense that we hold ourselves to a higher standard, that we have this history of welcoming people here, that we've been in an asylum and a refuge for the oppressed over our entire history, and that that's simply not the case. And so that's gonna be a, an interesting conversation for Americans to be having. And we are already having it, we've been having it, because the politics around immigration and refugees and what kind of country are we, and who should we welcome here, was well underway and has been underway since really since the, since the 1930s.
3: We haven't had any kind of wide response to the film because people haven't seen it other than press and a few influencers. I do think Lynn is right that one of the points we make in the series is that the Jewish community in America is not monolithic. The Jewish community in Europe was not monolithic. I think trying to bring a wide-ranging, broader appreciation of not only American anti-Semitism, but Jewish populations generally are not one thing. And so their reactions, their experiences, their um, family stories are different. And I think the dynamics of American anti-Semitism juxtaposed to racism, xenophobia, kind of a white supremacist America, not only as Lynn was just saying, in the 1930s, but before. And I I think, you know, we do spend a fair amount of time in the first episode looking at early American history, getting us to the first more restrictive immigration policies, which happened in the 1920s.
0: Just to wrap up, I know that you are incredibly professional filmmakers, that Ken Burns, uh, your entire team is always committed to telling a story and not giving your audience marching orders. But still, what do you most hope that viewers of this really impactful series will come away with?
2: You know, we'll be grateful for people to watch the film and start to think about some of the questions that we ourselves had at the beginning of this process, which was, you know, what did we know and what did we do? And what are our obligations to our fellow human beings around the world? And underlying that, a sense of the fragility of our democracy and how we've seen just by trying to tell this story, how quickly a democracy can crumble and how quickly authoritarianism can take hold and how difficult it is to dislodge it. And these things happen in democracies. Democracies are fertile ground for that, especially where there's a lot of instability, inequality, um, stress, all the things we're seeing in our society today. And so the the warning signs of how, how dangerous, what a dangerous moment we're in right now uh, we we wish that this film were not so relevant, but it is. And so we're hoping it just informs people's understanding of what's happening all around us in real time.
3: I think, you know, just to piggyback on that point, we've been talking a lot about this notion that Daniel Mendelsohn mentions in the film about how quickly our civilized institutions can crumble, democracies can fail. We're seeing that around the world right now. And I think the only thing I would add is I'm always personally very surprised at how few people vote in this country. That seems like a very basic thing to say, but we don't vote on a local level, on a state level, and big federal elections. our, Our voting numbers are really low. So it sounds silly, but I actually hope people take away that your vote really matters, and it's a privilege to live in a democracy, in a free country, and certainly by no means perfect, but you should exercise your right to vote
0: Will we in Israel have any chance to see this film? I know that PBS material isn't always accessible over here.
2: Yes, we are in the process right now of licensing the film around the world. And we have a number of um, conversations going on with Israeli broadcasters. So we're fairly confident that it will be shown on television in Israel at some point later this year, early next year. And in addition, I am coming to Israel in November for a conference and hoping to do a public screening of the film as well at that time.
0: Well, we're looking forward Lynn Novick, Sarah Botstein, thank you so much for coming on our podcast. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. It was great to be with you. And that wraps things up for Haaretz Weekly. Many thanks to my guests and to my producer, Avri Rosenzweig. I'm Allison Kaplan-Summer. Until next week, shalom from Tel Aviv.